Pleasure to have each and every one of you here. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 214, page 214. And uh, as we've been going through this month of June and the five weeks of the month of June, we're investing our time looking at the book of Judges and looking at uh, probably the most uh, visible leader uh, during that time in the history of Israel. In fact, uh, Samson, while the book of Judges is written by many leaders, both men and women, who served the nation of Israel well, Samson's going to get the most press out of all of them. Four chapters of this uh, book are dedicated to the life and times of this man, Samson, this man whom God has endowed with great strength and great might uh, to vanquish the neighboring enemies, uh, the Philistines. And over these four chapters, uh, we are going to learn that while God has gifted him with great strength and great power and might, uh, his greatest enemy is not the neighboring nation, uh, the Philistines. No, in fact, we're going to learn what many of us learn in life, that our greatest enemy is ourselves, that our own passions and our own desires and the, and the things that so readily we keep unchecked in our lives are the very things that bring us down. And we've learned already that Samson has a lot of uh, chinks in his armor, if you will. He has a lot of areas of weakness, uh, not because of an external foe, but because he's unwilling to deal with the sin and the failures and the flaws in his own life. And as a result of that, you would think that God has picked a broken man. And as a result of picking this broken man, that God can't get his job done. Well, what we're going to see over and over again as we have is that through Samson's disobedience and through his wrong decisions and and through his own selfish lusts and desires, that God still gets his job done. God uses Samson in spite of himself in many ways. And that's a reminder for us that God, even amongst our failures and our flaws and our dysfunction and even our downright disobedience, we may think, well, if I've blown it, then, then God has blown it because he chooses to use me. Uh, we need to know that God's plans cannot be thwarted. The devil nor our disobedience can thwart the plans and purposes of God. But what we learn in Samson's life is amidst our failures and flaws and sinful decisions, while God may use them to accomplish his will and purposes, that doesn't mean all is going to go well with us. And the story of Samson, these four chapters in Judges, is tragedy upon tragedy, heartbreak upon heartbreak, and broken lives as a result. It could have been so different for Samson had he done things God's way instead of pursuing them uh, under his own agenda and his own plans. And what we're going to learn today, if there's a word that could kind of highlight Judges 15 for us, it's the word revenge. It's a word I want to continue to center our attention on uh, today because we're going to see that revenge so many times starts so sweet. But we're going to learn from Samson's life, it ends incredibly sour. And I want to show you how we need to be careful about this issue of revenge and keep it out of our lives so that it doesn't eat us up as it did Samson. So let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word as we look at Judges 15 this morning. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went up to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife and in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. 
And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall not be innocent. I I shall be innocent, I'm sorry, in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and to the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Orchards. He messed it up in the first service too. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite. Because he, has taken his wife, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? We have come up against you, they said, to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. And 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etom and said to Samson, Do you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is it that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you so that you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to him, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax, and it caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it. And when he struck it, or when he struck 1,000 men, and Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, and with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down 1,000 men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. And then he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he was revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And Samson judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. Let's pray. Father God, as we open your word, I pray that you would teach and train us in your righteousness. Lord, an incredible passage of scripture with much bloodshed. Lord, what can we gain from such a sad story? We know that all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So Lord, I pray that you would allow by your spirit for that to take place in the lives of your people. And Lord, we thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What I want to do with this passage of Scripture is give you a kind of running commentary on what is going on. But again, I want to remind you that the Scripture points us to one word. You're going to see it over and over again. I am doing to them what they have done to me. That in one word is the word revenge. 
When I was a young boy, my uh, parents uh, would gather us around a record player. Yes, I said record player. I'm that old. And what we used to listen to were old records of the comedian Bill Cosby. Long before his TV show would make him a, a household name, Bill Cosby was known in the stand-up world from his uh, comedic uh, stories that he had. And one of the stories that I will never forget as a young child is the story that is titled Revenge. And Bill tells a story growing up in Philadelphia. One January, him and his friend, Harold, who's always a part of the stories, are having a snowball fight. And they're having a great time. There's nothing better in snow than you and a buddy to have a snowball fight. And they're just enjoying that and laughing and joking and and hitting each other with nice, soft uh, snowballs. And and they're just having a great time. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone hits Bill in the face, not with a fluffy snowball, but breaking the cardinal rule of all snowball fights an ice ball has been thrown. And it smacked Bill right on the side of the face. And it's stinging. It's burning. And he's trying to hold in the tears. I mean, this thing really hurts. And out of the blue, he hears, ha, 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 I got you real good, Cosby. I got you real good. And it's not Harold. It's his arch enemy, good old Junior Barnes. And Junior Barnes had broken the rules. He's thrown an ice ball, hit him in the face, made a kid cry, made a kid run back to his house. And Bill says, all I could think about was revenge. Revenge. Now, Bill could have picked up an ice ball and thrown it back at Junior Barnes, but that's not how revenge works, right? So what does he do? With all the premeditation in the world, he begins to think, how can I get Junior Barnes back? And what he does, he says, I'm going to give it back to him just as he gave it to me. And he forms the most beautiful, the most tightly wound and and, and packed snowball. But he doesn't throw it at him in January. He waits till July. And on the hottest day in Philadelphia, where the temperatures were well over 100 100 degrees, He has waited for this day. He says with great flair that he has even befriended his enemy, Junior Barnes, just to keep him close enough for the time where Junior Barnes would get smacked in the face and how he dreamed of the slushy goodness hitting his face and making the boy cry. And on that hottest day in July, he goes to the freezer where he has so aptly put this perfect snowball, only to find out that his mom had thrown it away. So what is he going to do? He's got nothing left, he says, to end his comedic act. So he goes out, and what does he do? He spits on his buddy. And he gets back at him. Now, I know that that I could never do what Cosby did, and if you want to, you can YouTube that, and it's a great, great, wonderful story with Cosby's flair. But it's a reminder that revenge is something that's inherent within each and every one of us. I mean, think of the last time someone did something to you. Your first thought isn't, well, I better forgive. If you are, then I want to spend some time talking with you because I know what happens within my human heart. I'm going to get them back. They take a pound of flesh out of me. I'm going to get a couple pounds out of flesh out of them. If you remember the movie, The Untouchables, you remember you put our man into the hospital, we'll put your man in the morgue. Okay? You come to me with a knife, we'll come with you with a gun. That is the idea of this, of this emotion called revenge. 
If someone hurts us, we're going to hurt them. It's a tit for a tat, and we're going to keep going on in this conflict together because we will not sit idly by and allow someone to wrong us without us getting the opportunity to wrong them. This is the gist of the passage in Judges 15. Samson has been wronged, and now he's going to even the score by going to his enemies and wronging them. And it creates this cycle that I think is unbecoming for the life of the Christian, and I'm going to explain why. So let's look at, with the time we have left, three points this morning. Number one, we need to understand from Judges 15 that you and I have to face the unintended ramifications or the unexpected ramifications of our choices. Let's start here first. What I want you to know is nobody is demanding that Samson do what he's doing. Samson, we need to go back to Judges 14 and learn what's going on. It's a happy time. Samson has picked his wife. She's right in his eyes. She's beautiful. He wants to marry her. And he brings his father, and they have the marriage celebration. And during that time, he's given 30 groomsmen uh, to be a part of this wedding ceremony. And during that time, Samson puts a riddle before these Philistine companions that have been given to him as groomsmen. And he says, if you can get this riddle right, then I will each give you a new suit. That's a good deal. And the riddle has to do with what he was doing sinfully in a vineyard uh, during his time where he was supposed to be apart from all of that, anything that had uh, fruit-bearing vines and all. He was supposed to stay away from all that. And he had killed the lion. We remember the story. He killed the lion, and uh, out of it came, uh, after a period of time, a swarm of honeybees and a honeycomb of honey. And he says, can you figure out my riddle? Well, they can't figure it out. For days, they can't figure it out. And Samson's about to get himself 30 new suits. He's excited about it. He loves telling riddles. He loves this opportunity to really give it to the Philistines. But here's the problem. His wife starts getting upset. And his wife starts saying, you know, why are you making my people look so stupid? Why are you causing, these are my friends, these are my family members, and you have brought disgrace and dishonor to them. And she starts nagging him, and she starts being persistent with him. Tell them the answer to the riddle. Tell them, tell them. He finally, because of her nagging, relents, tells her the answer. And what does she do? She goes and tells them. Samson loses the bet. And notice what happens. Samson has now a choice to make. Now let me stop there before I tell the rest of the story. We all have choices to make. And one of the things that we learn from Samson's life is that we need to think through not only the choice that we make at present, but the ramifications of that choice in the future. Samson, had Samson thought through the ramifications of what was about to transpire, I can assure you Samson would not have gone that way because he would have known where he was heading was disaster. Some of us in our lives right now are making decisions that seem right and good in the present that are only going to lead to destruction in the future. And we're not thinking through that. We're not mature enough to take the long view of things, so we make what feels right. We make that decision now with little thought of what it will do two or 20 years from now. Samson's about to make a decision that is going to have a ripple effect for his life for years to come. Sadly, some of us have made decisions that have impacted our marriage, have impacted our finances, have impacted relationships, have impacted our walk with God because it felt good in the moment. 
but we didn't think about the ramifications that were going to come. Remember this, your choices matter. Your decisions have ramifications. Had Samson known that, his life would have been better off. Had we known that, our lives in many ways would be better off as well. So what happens? Samson loses the bet. And Samson, notice in verse uh, 19 of chapter 14, right before our passage, it tells us that he gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And in his hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So what had he done? He went and got 30 garments of clothes for his companions. Well, where did he get them from? Notice what the text says in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 14. He leaves, goes to a nearby village, kills 30 innocent men, steals their clothes, and brings them back to the wedding feast and offers them to the men. So he's a man of his word. He take, i got to give you each a suit. I'm going to go find a suit, go kill 30 men. They hadn't done anything. They weren't a part of the riddle. He kills them to give them the suits. Now, here's what happens. In his hot anger, it says at the end of chapter 14, he makes a decision. His decision is instead of going back to his wife, he goes to his father's house. Commentators say he does this because he's pouting. He didn't get his way. He lost. He's lost some of his pride. So I'm going to go to my father's house. Now, remember this. Samson is to be on his honeymoon. This is Samson's time where he is enjoying uh, the blessing of a new wife and all of that. And now he's at his father's home pouting. Chapter 15 opens up and Samson, who had lost that loving feeling, has got that loving feeling back. Notice in verse 1, after some days, we don't know how many days that is, but it's a period of time. At the time of the wheat harvest, which is important for later on, Samson went to visit his wife with the young goat. What doesn't say love better than a young goat? Right, ladies? I mean, man, when you see your, your dude carrying a young goat, man, that, that's romantic, okay? Well, in the day, that was uh, a uh, bountiful bouquet of flowers, okay? In that day, that said, you're really, really special to me, okay? What says you're special better than a young goat? In that day, that's exactly what it was, okay? And he goes, and I want you to notice that his, we're going to see that the unexpected ramifications of the choice he makes of leaving his wedding are about to come. Notice, first of all, Samson has to endure a broken heart. In verse 1, it says that when he goes to visit his wife, his father-in-law meets him and says, I cannot let you go in. Wait a minute. She's my wife. It's my honeymoon. I should be able to go and be a part of it. And the father-in-law says, no, you can't. That woman that you said was right in your eyes, that woman you told your parents you could not live without, that woman that you demanded that they come and bring to you, you can't have her anymore. Why? Notice that there is a betrayal that takes place. And the betrayal is, why can't he have his wife? Here's the problem. Samson, in his anger, left his wedding before it was fully complete. And during that time, as we learned in the Sermon on the Mount some time ago, that in Old Testament times, a man could divorce his wife during the seven-day festival that was known as the wedding ceremony, that seven days during that time, if there was anything that he saw that was unbecoming of his wife, he could divorce her and take off and leave. 
Samson's father-in-law says, I thought you hated her. I thought you didn't like her, and that's why you took off. Was that the reason why he took off? Did Samson all of a sudden have a different feeling about his wife? His feelings about his wife were not even involved in it. What took place was Samson got angry that he lost the bet. He got angry that his enemies got an opportunity to laugh at him. And he leaves and he goes on a rampage killing people. Here is what happens. Samson loses his wife because of a decision he makes. Now what a reminder. Let me just stop for a second and say what a reminder for some of us who struggle with unbridled passion with regards to anger. We talked last week about unbridled passion of lust. Now let's move that to the anger issue. Some of you are losing relationships and opportunities and uh, a better outcome in the future because you in your anger cannot be stopped. Because when someone makes you angry, the only thing you can think of is how you are going to express your anger, not the ripple effect of what that anger will do. Samson has little thought of what his relationship is going to, what's going to happen to his relationship. He's too busy on being angry. Now, who has betrayed him? Is it his father-in-law? Notice his father-in-law has given him to the best man. Is the father-in-law to be questioned that he changed the rules? No. Notice the father-in-law says, in a moment we'll see, here's my younger daughter. You can have her. So he's okay with the marriage. Maybe it's the best man. Was he in cahoots with the woman and they had something going on on the side? It doesn't seem that that's the case at all. The writer seems to say that he's just given an opportunity to fulfill, uh, if you will, the right of a divorced woman that she is to be taken into marriage by someone else. And so he takes her into marriage. It's not the best man. I want you to notice the betrayal is by Samson himself. Samson's unchecked passions and unbridled anger is what causes him to lose that which he loves. Now Samson wants to look at anybody else that he can to blame this on, but there's no one to blame but himself. Some of us this morning are involved in situations where our life has completely become undone, and we want to look to everybody else and point to them, you're the problem, you're the one that messed this up. And I want you to know this morning, some of you need to look in the mirror and point to yourself. It is you who needs to get mad at yourself, not anyone else. Samson was blowing it. And he was looking for someone to blame. Now notice there's bargaining. There's two types of bargaining that goes on. The father bargains with Samson. Hey, Samson, I don't want any trouble, so here's my younger daughter. Now, there's kind of a hidden insult that's there. Notice in the text, in verse 1 and 2, we see this bargaining going on, and the father-in-law says, hey, I've got a younger daughter, and let me describe her for you. She's better looking than the older one. How would you have liked to have been the older sister sitting there at that point? I got another daughter, and if you thought she was a fox, let me show you this one. Man, this one blows her out of the water. And so there's this bargaining going on. I want you to notice something about the bargaining. The father-in-law speaks to Samson where Samson lives. Notice the father-in-law doesn't talk about the social graces of the daughter. He doesn't talk about her intellect. He doesn't talk about her ability to relate with others. He doesn't talk about uh, her etiquette. He only talks about that which speaks to Samson, 
her beauty. Samson's father-in-law knows that the only thing that Samson sees is what appeals to him, and that is the lust of his heart. I want you to notice that you may think that you're hiding what's going on in your heart, but people that are around you long enough will be able to know with an uncanny ability what's going on on the inside. Samson knows, I'm sorry, Samson's father-in-law knows what makes Samson tick. And what is a private and personal hunger that Samson has that maybe not many other people knew about? Samson's father-in-law knew it exactly and says, I know what gets you going. You're looking for beauty, and she's beautiful. You don't care about anything else, so I'm going to advertise that which I know you're looking for. And we need to be careful because we think our sins are private, we think they're personal, we don't think anybody else knows them. Spend enough time around people and those people will see it. Now, that's the first bargain. Notice there's a second bargain in that. And the second bargain is seen in a compromise that Samson makes. Notice, Samson says in the text... Now I will be innocent in what I do against the Philistines. I'm going to harm them, and I'm going to be innocent. I want you to know right now, that's an all-out lie. It's a lie. What Samson is doing is he's bargaining, he's compromising to say, I'm angry, and I'm really upset about what's happened, and I need to find someone to blame. And you know who's going to blame? It's the Philistines. It's their fault. Let's stop for a moment and rewind what's been going on. Samson made the decision to intermarry with the Philistines. They didn't force him to do it. He did it. He chose a Philistine wife. He then, because he chooses a Philistine wife, now has 30 Philistine companions. He chooses to make a riddle for them to make sport of his sin and his loose living. He chooses to make the barter or the wager to be 30 suits of clothing. He chooses once he loses, or sorry, he chooses to tell his wife the secret to the riddle. She then tells them, he didn't have to tell her that, but he chooses to do so. He chooses after losing the bet to go and kill 30 innocent men. He chooses all this. Now he's angry that when he comes back, that his wife has been given to someone else. He's angry, and who's to blame? He says the Philistines. After studying this for the last couple weeks, the only one to blame is Samson himself. Samson is to blame. He has made moronic decision after moronic decision, and it is now, if you will, the chickens are coming home to roost. The unintended and unexpected ramifications and consequences of bad decisions are finally starting to hit Samson right where he lives. And what he says is, I've got reason to be angry, and I know who I'm going to be mad at. Let me tell you, maybe we don't do it as in big of ways as Samson did, But I can tell you this week, I did it, what Samson did in this text. I had a bad week at work, a bad day at work, and and some things didn't turn out the way they wanted to. Some decisions I made kind of came back and bit me, and and I was frustrated and angry. And I remember coming home extra frustrated on the way home. I had just gotten a a bad phone call on the way home, and, and I come in, and I'm just raring for a fight. And my youngest son had a stupid truck in the middle of the garage that almost made me break my leg. And I walked in, and I let that kid absolutely have it. To which my wife says, what did he do? 
And I said, this is why I'm frustrated. This is why I'm angry. It's this kind of stuff. To which my wife said, it has nothing to do with that. Something happened all throughout the day. Don't blame your six-year-old kid on why you had a bad day. And yet we do that all the time. In small ways and in large ways. We don't like how our life is going and we look to blame others for it. Now notice a couple things that then move forward. As we look at this, we have to ask the question, is this becoming of a Christian? I want you to know that the Bible makes it abundantly clear that when it comes to this issue and cycle of revenge, you and I, point number two, need to refuse to take revenge against others. We gotta be careful of this. Was God going to use it? Yeah, he was gonna use it. Was it the best way? Probably not. And I want you to notice why. There are three very valuable lessons with regards to the issue of revenge I want you to see. Notice number one, when you try to get even with an enemy, I want you to notice it will become all-encompassing. That's what revenge does. Remember Bill Cosby in the story? He, he, he dreamed about it. He thought about it. He conspired about it. He, he invested his time and energy. Well, what does Samson do? Samson's angry. He wants to get back at the Philistines for what they have done or lack thereof. So what is he going to do? Notice in the text. In verse uh, 4, Samson went, caught 300 foxes or jackals is probably a better rendering. He took torches. He turns them tail to tail. Literally, he ties them tail to tail puts a torch in between the tails, and then sends them off. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Revenge has a way of eating into our life that the only thing we can think about is getting even with the one who's wronged us. Now let's remember, where is Samson supposed to be right now? He's supposed to be on his honeymoon. Where is Samson? Because of revenge and bitterness and resentfulness, He's catching foxes, tying their tails together, and putting torches. It sounds like a great honeymoon, doesn't it? Let me ask you men, it's Father's Day. How many of you would be, rather be on your honeymoon or catching foxes? I'm going to assume that you'd be on your honeymoon. Now that then begs the question, what is he doing? His jealousy and his anger and his wrath have filled him up to a point that he's by himself instead of being with the woman he loves. Why? Because he can't get beyond it. And some of you right now are so filled with bitterness and rage and anger over someone's uh, wrong that they've done against you that you can't think about anything else but that one thing. You can't get beyond it. You can't be filled with joy or peace because of that one thing someone has done to you. It's all-encompassing. Notice also, it's incredibly expensive. Why does Samson do this odd thing? He knows exactly why he's doing it. He's going to release these foxes or these jackals into the harvest fields. Remember verse 1, it's the time of the wheat harvest. So think about these Philistines and the Israelites who are living side by side, these people. These farmers have invested their entire year growing this crop. And at the time of harvest, when they're ready to reap it, when they're saying, here's our nest egg, if you will, for the coming winter... It all starts to burn up. All across the countryside, the place goes up in smoke. It's all being burned to a crisp. The amount of money that would be wasted as a result of that. And so you see that when we pour out revenge on others, it's all-encompassing. It's going to cost people things. 
And notice finally that you see within the battle that it's also going to cause for further escalation. If you ever get some time, here's some homework. Do a research, uh, do some research on the Hatfield and McCoys and their feud. Notice how it starts. And notice the amount of people that in that modern day feud have been harmed or hurt and the cost that comes as a result. Four times in our text, you are going to see the phrase, just as he or they have done to me, I will do to them. Here's the cycle. Samson does something to the Philistines. The Philistines do something to Samson. Samson reacts and responds to them. They react and respond to Samson. When you're involved in revenge, all you are is on the merry-go-round of bitterness, unforgiveness, and, uh, and resentfulness, and, and revenge. And it's a crazy cycle because it never ends and it only escalates. So how does it escalate? Notice that it involves a whole bunch of people. This issue between uh, Samson and the Philistines starts out with Samson and his companions at a wedding. He's unhappy that they've won the riddle, so what does he do? He leaves them and goes kills 30 other innocent men to get their suits to give back to them. He's already escalated it. You're going to see that what it's going to do is it's going to escalate because the Philistines now are going to respond against Samson. So why should we not pursue revenge? Because it encompasses all of our life. It's going to cost us and it's going to lead to further uh, development into greater issues of revenge and struggle. But let's say you choose that. Let's say you say, okay, it's worth it. It's worth it. Someone has really wronged me and I can't let it go. Here's the third point that I want you to see. If you're going to choose revenge, you better be ready. You better be ready. Go ahead and flip that screen for us. You better be ready for the retaliation by the offended. Samson's like, I'm going to come at them. And they're going to get it. They're going to know that they shouldn't mess with Samson. And notice what happens. When you choose revenge as your characteristic or lifestyle, be careful because it's going to hurt family and friends. What do the Philistines do? Notice that after the fire burns the crops of the Philistines, they go out, and what do they do? They burn his crop. Not in the agricultural world, but they burn his wife and his father-in-law. Commentators say that they killed the whole household. So the woman that Samson had come to love, the woman that Samson wanted to spend his life with, the family that Samson had felt so closely connected with, now is gone. It's hurt those individuals. And I want to remind us that when we choose revenge, when we choose to allow our anger or our bitterness to eat us up, it doesn't just affect us, but it affects those closest to us. I recently had a conversation with a friend who has ruined his life because of anger issues upon anger issues. And I said, where did you get this? Where did this come from? And you know what he said? It's the only way I saw my father respond. It's all I know. And I watched my friend whom I love making bad decision upon bad decision. And where did he learn it? He watched his dad. And some of us are showing our kids and our grandkids that the way you get ahead in this world is by walking over those who have wronged you. That's not Christ. That's selfishness. That's bitterness. 
That's anger that is, does not produce, as the scriptures say, the righteousness of God. And you're teaching that. Some of you tomorrow will continue to preach a sermon at work that goes like this. If you cross Timbadal, you better watch out because you got another thing coming. You don't mess with that guy. And some of you, as followers of Jesus Christ, because of your unbridled anger, have allowed your testimony to be you don't step on his toes because if you do, he'll break your leg. You cannot teach the teachings of Christ and be full of revenge and bitterness and anger. You just can't do it. And so what's going to happen is it's going to hurt your family and friends closest to you. Notice also, when you live that way, it will produce fear in others. In verses 7 and 8, we have Samson camping out in a, in a uh, cleft of a rock. Now I want you to notice, time and time again, Samson is completely alone. Always by himself. And the Philistines come looking for him. And as they do, they raid a city. They're angry. They want justice. And they raid a city. And that produces fear in all the cities around. Are the Philistines going to come and, and raid our city, killing more people? And so the Israelites, or the, the people of Judah, come, and they say to uh, Samson, you've got to stop doing this. Now, there is a part of compromise within the life of the Israelite people. That they're okay with the Philistines as their leaders. But i got to be honest with you, when I wrote the small group material and, and the study guides for this, I put a lot of blame on the Israelites, the people of Judah. But the more I studied it, I blame Samson. You see, Samson was called to be set apart so that he could lead the people of Israel to vanquish his enemies. And all he has done is shown that you don't mess with Samson and, in essence, his property. Notice when the Philistines ask uh, why this has been done, they say the reason why, in verse, uh, let's see here, verse 6, is because his wife was taken from him and given to his companion. So the Israelites are like, this is a personal vendetta. This isn't a national thing. So why would we involve ourselves in this personal thing when it doesn't involve us? And so notice this fear then causes for foolish choices. What do they do? The Israelite people do the most unthinkable thing. They give to their enemies their best soldier. Notice in the text, they bind him up. They say, we're not going to kill you, but we're going to bind you up with ropes and we're going to hand you over to the Philistines. We're going to cause you to have to surrender, to which he does. I want you to notice that when we live lives of revenge, and that bitterness and that anger, it will cause people around us to do dumb things. Number one, because we, we who are watching around you have no idea what to do. Because when it's about you, it's all about you. And the observers around you are trying to figure out, what do we do with this Samson? Where do we go with him? Man, he, he's reckless. He makes decisions that he shouldn't. They don't want nothing to do with him. So they hand him off to the people of the Philistines. And as a result of that, he's given over to the enemy. Now let's stop here for a moment. You would think amidst all of this unbridled anger that God couldn't use him. But notice in the text in verse 14 that at that point, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. 
What a great reminder of God's grace. That though we mess up, that though we fail, God still gives us power to accomplish his purposes and plans even when we go detour after detour around it. God gives Samson the grace. His things that bind him, he rips apart. And now after killing 30 men and and even an insurgent group of people, now with hundreds of men around him, he cuts them down one by one. He does what God wanted him to do, to vanquish the Philistines. Here's the problem. He chooses, when revenge is your number one issue, you will fight the right battles. Write this down, you'll fight the right battles, but in the wrong ways. Notice that he's fighting the right enemy. That's who he was supposed to take care of, the Philistines. Notice what he does in verse 15. He finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey and puts it out out his hand, and he took it, and with it he struck down a thousand men. From the normal reading of the text, you'd say, what's it's kind of odd, a jawbone of a donkey. I don't know how it works. I've never used it before, but obviously it's a pretty impressive tool or implement or weapon. But what's the problem with it? Samson's a Nazarite. What is Samson not supposed to touch? Help me out. Dead animals. So he grabs something that defiles him to win the battle. Can I tell you, when you choose revenge, God may use it for his good, but every time you use revenge as a way to accomplish God's purposes, God's purposes will come to pass, yes, because no one can thwart them, but with every enemy that you kill, a part of you dies as well. Did you know that as Samson laid down one after another, that God's Spirit unbeknownst to Samson is beginning to leave him little by little that little by little he's about to lose the strength because of the road of compromise that he continues to go down instead of fighting the battle God's way he chooses to fight chooses to fight it his own you see some of us think we're fighting God's battle and we may be but we're fighting it the wrong way the bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood we don't have to wage war against the people of this world to get to be known as right. But we wrestle against principalities. And so we need to take a, ba- a step back and ask the question this morning as a believer, am I at war with the spiritual forces of the world or am I at war with people? And the Bible seems to say that we're not at war with people, but at the, we're at war with the ways of this world and the devil and his demons and all of that. And so why is it that we're taking it out on those people? Some that are closest to us, some that maybe we don't even know. Why is revenge such an important part? Let me tell you something. If you're seeking to defeat your enemy because of revenge, you may accomplish that, but in the end, you'll lose your soul. So what do we do? Let me close with three points of application. What do we do with a bloodbath of of carnage in chapter 15 of Judges, there are three truths I want you to walk away with. Number one, don't choose revenge, but place your enemies in God's hands. Place your enemies in God's hands. I don't know who your enemies with. I know they're out there. I know I have some enemies in my life, some people that I really don't like that have wronged me in some real tangible ways. But let me remind you of what Proverbs 20, 22 says. 
do not say, I will pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord, and he will avenge you. You see, some of us are wanting to get a pound of flesh, and that's not for us to have. Marcus Aurelius once said, the best revenge is to be unlike him who has performed the injury against you. Write this passage down. The Apostle Paul tells us that in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, Romans 12, 17 through 21, that we cannot repay evil with evil, but we must repay evil with good. Here's why. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when we talked about uh, having to forgive our enemies and love our enemies? I reminded you that you cannot share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone while you're trying to attack them. What I mean by that is you cannot offer the free gift of grace in Christ Jesus with an open hand when you're shaking your fist at your enemy. So you have a choice to make. If you choose to go at your enemy with your fist, you lose every opportunity to ever share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. It better be worth it. It better be worth it. Number two, you need to pray continuously. In verse 18, after the battle is done, he has struck down a thousand men. He becomes thirsty, it says. And he calls upon the Lord. This is the first time in three chapters that Samson has prayed. First time we have any recording that Samson, this man who is to be filled with the Spirit, set apart from God, has even made mention of God. And even in this passage, in some ways it's a selfish prayer. It's a childish prayer. But at least he prays. Which begs the question then, would Samson have run into all of this heartache and trouble had he prayed? Let me turn it on us. Would you and I experience the hardship and trouble that we're dealing with today had we prayed? Would you have fallen prey to that bad decision? Would you have fallen prey to that revenge that cost you more than you know had you stopped and prayed? You see, praying reminds us and it tells us and it helps us to recognize that we are not to gratify the fleshful appetites but to be filled with the Spirit and live out the fruit of the Spirit. Prayer reminds us that the Beatitudes are the way we ought to live, not a pound, for, a pound and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Prayer reminds us that we are to be slow to speak, uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Prayer reminds us that we are to respond as Christ did, not as we want to. That though he suffered unjustly, he did not revile or or fight back but he left it to God who judges justly how often are you praying when we pray there's a greater chance that we will not fall prey to our own earthly appetites finally we need to put God's agenda ahead of our own what did Samson not do he did not do what we learned in the Sermon on the Mount he did not seek first God and his kingdom Did God accomplish his work and his kingdom in Samson's life? Yes. But Samson missed the boat. And some of us right now are seeing God fulfill his kingdom work in us, but we're missing it. We're wondering why there's no joy. We wonder why there's so much heartache. We wonder why there's so such lack of power in our lives. It's because we're putting our agenda ahead of God's, and God's still accomplishing his work, but he's doing it in spite of ourselves. 
And so what we need to do is we need to stop, we need to start praying, and we need to start saying, Lord, instead of my enemy being number one, you're going to be number one. Instead of me thinking about him, I'm going to think about you. Instead of investing time on him, I'm going to invest time with you. And in doing so, we will not only accomplish the plans and purposes of God in our lives, but we'll be blessed in doing so. Samson missed it. Did he accomplish God's work? Yes. He will now lead the people of Israel for 20 years, but it will cost him dearly. So that begs the question, the question that we leave with today. Is getting an enemy back with revenge more important than fulfilling God's plans and purposes? The answer will be found this Monday. When you go back to work or into your neighborhoods or, or you come a part of something that someone has wronged you with, are you going to avenge it or are you going to give it back to God and stay true to what God has called you and I to? The choice is up to you. But I will tell you, if you choose the way of revenge, your life will not go very well for you. You'll endure very terrible hardships and struggles because that's the way things go when we give ourselves to the flesh. Or we can go the way of God and his calling in our life and experience blessing and the benefits of what it means to live a submitted life to Christ. What are you going to do? In light of what I've read, I know what my heart's desire is not to go the way of Samson, but to follow the ways of our Savior and endure hardship like a good soldier and let God deal with my enemies because he's called me to love them and called me to uh, pursue him instead of my own personal agenda. Let's pray. Father God, tough passage. A tough passage that gets us thinking. And I know, Lord, there are many in our midst that have endured incredible difficulties at the hands of others. We've been wronged. And they're legitimate hurts and legitimate issues. But Lord, it seems from this example of Scripture that you've taught us today that revenge may not be the best option. Lord, when you call us to respond with a hand of justice, Lord, I pray that we'll rise up and we'll perform our duty without question. But Lord, I don't see those things happen as often as, as, as they... I don't see that happen as often as, as I think they do, Lord. Because usually, Lord, in in my life, it's because I'm angry. It's because I've been wronged. It's because someone has done something to me that, that makes me mad. And so, Lord, I pray in those moments where justice isn't the issue, but forgiveness and mercy and compassion, Lord, I pray that would happen. Not just that I could forgive those who have wronged me, but I would protect myself and my family and those closest to me from an ongoing fight of revenge and struggle. Lord, we want to honor you, and so we give our lives to you. Fill us by your Spirit. Fill us so that we can fight the right battles the right way, so that we may honor you, whether at peace or in times of war, that you would be brought glory through our actions. Now, Lord, take us from this place into a world of hurts and pains where people are going to wrong us. Lord, we're going to apply this text right away into our lives. Lord, let us apply it well. So it will go well with us, and so we will honor the God who has saved us and called us to something better. Now, Lord, send us forth from this place in fellowship that we may get to know one another better, that we have gotten to know you better through your word. 
Lord, it is in this that I close out our service in the name of Jesus Christ, your one and only Son. To him be the glory and honor in your church and throughout this world. In his name we pray. Amen.